0: Good evening. Great to see you back here again. We're going to be in the book of Amos tonight. We're back in our series on the minor prophets. So we've been through Hosea, Joel, now we are in the book of Amos. I have to say, studying this book this week, there's a lot of treasures in this book of Amos. So I hope you'll dive into this uh, maybe throughout this week and at other times. Just a really great book, uh, as all books are, of course, but I was very... Just really, really enjoyed studying this book this week. Uh, let's go over just a little bit, uh, just in a way of background information about this book to help us understand it a little bit more. Really, all we need to do is look at the first verse of the book. Kind of gives us the, all the background information that we need. Amos 1 verse 1 says this, The words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, which he envisioned, visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So several points here to kind of, again, give us some background about this book. Number one, Amos prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah, king of Judah, and Jeroboam, the second king of Israel. All right, we talked about how the kingdom was divided at this point, the northern kingdom in Israel and the southern kingdom in Judah. And it's in these days when uh, Amos is prophesying. Now this puts his prophecy, prophesying about uh, the mid-700s BC. Uh, the date I saw a lot was 760 BC. So he would have been a contemporary of Hosea, who we talked about a few weeks ago. Um, Isaiah and Jonah would have probably been prophesying around this time. Some overlap there with those prophets as well. Um, so th- I think sometimes we think maybe it's just one prophet at a time, but there was actually multiple prophets who prophesied at the same time, and Amos was uh, a contemporary of some other prophets in the mid 700s BC. Now something interesting is he mentions two years before the earthquake. Now as far as I know, there's not a narrative in the Bible of said earthquake, like a story that tells us this is the earthquake and all the people ran away and this is what happened. But there are just a couple of spots that mention this earthquake. Zechariah 14, verse 5, being one of those, he says, This, you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So he mentions an earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Now, the interesting thing is, uh, Zechariah prophesies about 200 years later. So you think about an earthquake that happened, and he's looking back 200 years at this earthquake. It must have been a pretty impressive earthquake, something that was pretty devastating for him to look back and say, hey, you're going to run like you ran in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, when that earthquake came. So I started kind of looking this up, And I found that uh, there's actually some archaeological evidence of an earthquake. And in a couple of articles that I read, both of them dated it back about to the time of Amos in the mid-700s B.C. Uh, Here's one uh, lady, Ruth Schuster. In her article, Fact-Checking the Book of Amos, there was a huge quake in the 8th century B.C. She says this, evidence of catastrophe in 8th century B.C.E. northern Israel is legion. A destruction lair at Hadzor was dated by Israel Finkelstein and Yigal Yadin to 760 BC, the right time frame for Amos. At Lachish, David Yusishkin found a destruction level from the same time. Acre also has a similar lair dating to the mid-8th century BCE, and she continues on giving these different evidences that people have found of an earthquake that dates back to the time of Amos. So I I thought that was interesting. I wanted to throw that out there um, because I think sometimes uh, we may, some people may say, well, the Bible, you know, it's just really a a myth or it's just something that's made up. Archaeology can be a really great help for us uh, in, in actually uncovering biblical facts, artifacts, and things like this. We can point to it and say, hey, there was an earthquake and people have found, Earthquake remains from the time of Amos. And it's mentioned right here. He's not making this up. It's something that actually happened. And there's so many other things uh, about archaeology that we, we, you could point to with the Bible. But that can help us in our argument to tell others about, about Christ. And I thought that was, that was interesting. So that was the first thing I wanted you to, to notice was that he, he prophesied during uh, the mid-700s B.C. And there was an earthquake around this time. Secondly, I want you to notice That Amos is from the southern kingdom of Judah, but he actually prophesies to the northern kingdom. Alright, so if we go back to Amos 1 verse 1, he says he's a sheep herder from Tekoa. Now Tekoa was a city that was just right outside of Jerusalem, very close to Bethlehem. Alright, and so that's where Amos is from, is from this town called Tekoa. But he actually prophesies to the northern kingdom. We see that throughout the book. The, the message is mostly directed to the northern kingdom. Now, we, I know we've mentioned this before. Again, there was a split of the nation of Israel, right? Go back to 1 Kings chapter 12. And Jeroboam is the, king, the first king of Israel. Rehoboam is the, the king of Judah. And Jeroboam in that chapter, he sets up idolatrous worship in Israel, in Bethel and in Dan, and he really set the tones for all the kings of Israel who came after him. They followed in Jeroboam's footsteps, in idolatry, in sin. And eventually, because of this sin, they were destroyed by Assyria in 722 B.C. And, and so Amos is pro- prophesying well before there, this time in 722 B.C., but it was coming. Idolatry was prevalent, and there was sin just mounting in in Israel and Jeroboam the second who was the king during Amos's time he was no different from the first Jeroboam he wasn't he was not a great king he followed in the steps of idolatrous worship and there was actually some material prosperity during this time but spiritually speaking Israel was in a a tough spot and none of the kings are really good in the northern kingdom of Israel and so Amos is prophesying during these times Amos, I also want you to notice, Amos was a shepherd and a fig tree farmer. Now, the, the, the part about the fig trees is not here in this verse. Okay, but he is a shepherd from Tekoa. But if you go to chapter 7, verse 14, he has a little confrontation with a man named Amaziah. And he says this to Amaziah. I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. For I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock... And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. And was, uh, in his response to Amaziah, Amos is saying, listen, I was not originally a prophet. I was just a, a herdsman. I was just a, a grower of sycamore fig trees. That's, that's what I was. But, you know, God called me. He took me from following my flock, from keeping these trees, and he told me to prophesy. And I did it. And here's the, one of the points I want us to take away from this from this book of amos right off the bat is god can use anybody to accomplish his purposes anybody somebody like amos who was maybe just seen as the average guy in israel a sheep herder and and a guy who kept sycamore fig trees maybe not doesn't have the pedigree as some of the other prophets like they may have a priestly background or maybe some other type of noble lineage He's just kind of your average guy. But God takes Amos from, him, from, the, from shepherding the flock and keeping these trees, and he uses him in an awesome way to call out his people, to, to come back to God. God can use anyone for his purposes. And this shouldn't surprise us. Think about all the people in the Bible that were maybe just ordinary in, in the minds of humans. Or people who didn't have the biggest background or the best background, so to speak. But God took them and used them in incredible ways. I think about Moses, the guy who who fled from Egypt, made a bunch of excuses to not go. He wasn't eloquent in speech. He he just said, you know what, God, send somebody else. And God said, no, you're going to go. And he turned Moses into one of the greatest leaders this world's ever seen. I think about David, another shepherd, a, a shepherd boy, right? The youngest of Jesse's sons. Maybe wasn't the most impressive looking compared to his brothers, but God still took this shepherd boy and used him to slay a giant like Goliath and raised him up to be one of the greatest kings of Israel. And even through David's sinning with Bathsheba and Uriah, that whole situation, God still used him in incredible ways. I think about Rahab, about a woman who lived an immoral lifestyle and lived in Jericho, and she hid those spies she's in the hall of faith in hebrews chapter 11 we talked about that in our class last sunday or two sundays ago a a woman who lived this immoral lifestyle who was not an israelite she was a foreigner and yet she was saved because she hid those spies and trusted that god was actually going to take over jericho and she said remember me when this happens god can use somebody like that i think about the apostles what about all the apostles The guys who were like the blue-collar guys, the fishermen, probably a dirty job. People who were tax collectors, like Matthew, probably not well-liked by his fellow countrymen. What about zealots? You know, Jesus got these men who, in our eyes, would just be like, "Why, why would he choose those guys? But he turned them into men who spread the gospel to the entire world, basically. Once Jesus left and they died for their faith for Jesus Christ. God can use anyone for his purposes. And sometimes I think we can get tricked into thinking, well, I'm not not that great. Like, I don't have the best background. I don't have the greatest speaking voice or the greatest singing voice. Or I don't have this talent or that talent. How can God use me? I promise he can. And he will if you'll be willing. God can use you, and he can accomplish great things through you. There's somebody around you that needs to hear the message. And you might be that one that's going to tell them. I think so, a hint uh, to helping us understand this is actually in the situation with David. David in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Samuel comes to anoint David as king. He doesn't know who it is yet. And he sees the oldest son of, of Jesse. And he's like, oh, this has got to be the guy. Like, he's probably well built. And he's like, okay, this is him. But look what, what said. Uh, the Lord says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16 verse 7. He says, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We can get really caught up in physical attributes and physical things. But God sees what's inside. God sees our hearts. What we, the potential that we have inside. Where is our heart? Where are our motivations? God sees inside And we can see externals. We can say, oh, that guy's not qualified or that person's not qualified to do this job. But God says, no, I can use that person. If we have the right heart, God can take us and use us in incredible ways. And certainly David did have the right heart. He was the one who was anointed here in this chapter. But God sees the inside, something that's more important than the external factors. He can use anybody for his purposes. I've heard a quote that I've really liked over the years. And this is probably not the exact quote. I don't know where it came from, but it's this quote right here. God is not as concerned with your ability as much as your availability. What I think is being said there is God's not necessarily concerned with you having the best speaking voice or the, the, the best whatever, whatever talent it may be that, that you don't feel like you have. He's just concerned with, if, are you available are you available for him to use you? Or are you putting other things to the side, uh, in front of him, pushing him to the side? God wants to use you. If you will just be available and ready, God can do an amazing work through you. There's no doubt about it. Every single person sitting in this room, God can do something incredible in you. He did it through Amos, who was just a shepherd and a tree farmer. He can do it in me and you. So let's be available to work for God. Let's have the the mindset to be ready to work, to have the heart and willingness to work. I wanted to point that out. Now, the interesting part about uh, Amos as we get into the actual text here, Amos doesn't start off uh, just coming right out and talking about uh, the nation of Israel. He actually starts talking about judgment upon the other nations. So look at this list uh, on the judgment of the nations. Uh, Amos starts out by calling out Damascus. And verses chapter 1, 3 through 5, Gaza or Philistia in 1, 6 through 8, Tyre in 1, 9 and 10, Edom 1, 11 through 12, Ammon 1, 13 to 15, Moab 2, 1 to 3, and Judah in 2, 4 through 5. He starts calling out all these different nations that are surrounding Israel. And, and, and when I was reading through these, I found that uh, each one of these except for judah all the other foreign nations he calls them out for some type of violence or ruthlessness that they they showed against another nation you know wiping out another nation or taking another nation captive it's it's something to do with hurting other peoples and so he calls them all out then he calls judah out for for not keeping his law and i can think at this point that the northern kingdom of israel is probably like hey listen amos's message is great He's calling out all of our enemies. He's calling out Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and Edom, all these surrounding nations. I like this guy, but that's not the end. Once we get to verse 6 of chapter 2, basically the rest of the book, God is calling out Israel for their sins. He's saying, you're not off the hook, guys. You're just as guilty, even more guilty. And so he calls out Israel basically for the rest of the book. Now, before we actually get into what God called them out for, I want you to notice something that's all, that's all throughout this book, and it's the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. We see this all throughout the book of Amos, and really in all the prophets, but I think it's very much found in the book of Amos. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we're talking about God's power and ability to do whatever he pleases, whenever he pleases. He's in control of everything. He's got all power. He's got all control. Nothing surprises God. Nothing passes God. He's in control of everything. That's really what we're talking about. I think Job 42 verse 2 is one verse that really points to God's sovereignty. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job 42 verse 2. Nothing that God proposes to do can be stopped. Nobody can stop him. When God decides to do something, it will be done. And it will be carried out how he wants it to be carried out. And so throughout the book, we find these statements from from Amos about God being in control of everything. We just talked about God judging all the nations, right? About Damascus and Philistia and all these other places. God's not just in control of Israel, his own people, and Judah, He's in control of every nation. He's in control of them all. He makes nations rise up. He makes them fall down. God's not just in control of one people. He's in control of everything. And what he decides to do with a particular nation or particular people, it will be done. Look at a couple passages from Amos that I think point to God's sovereignty and control. Amos 4, verse 13. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts... He who takes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. How about Amos 5, verse 8? He who made the Pleiades and Orion and changes deep darkness into morning, who also darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name. Amos 9, 5 through 6. The Lord of hosts, the one who touches the land so that it melts, and all those who dwell in it mourn. And all of it rises up like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt. The one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vaulted dome over the earth. He who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. And there's example after example here in the book of Amos where we see God is in control of everything. He's the one who created the starry host. the the constellations above. He's the one who controls the waters. He's the one who sits above in the high heavens and looks down upon his creation. He's the one who can just touch the earth and and it melts, so to speak. God is in control of everything. Our God is a powerful God and nothing can stop his purposes. And I think Amos is trying to show the, the nation of Israel that God is the sovereign Lord and what he proposes to do, it will happen. And if you don't change, God's purpose of punishment is going to come. The sovereignty of God is a a message that we see throughout the book. Now, I wanted to bring this up because a lot of times, and I've I've said this a lot of times from the pulpit, that uh, this world is becoming more and more sinful and more and more just further, further away from God, right? And I think that we can maybe get fooled into thinking that or asking, hey, God, where are you? God, are you, are you there? Are you acting? Are you even doing anything? And let me be perfectly clear. God is still in control today. 100%. We can guarantee it. God is still in control. Now, God may allow certain things to happen in the world, and we could talk about that at another time. Why does he allow certain things to happen? But I can tell you right now, nothing escapes God's notice. Nothing is surprising to God. Nothing is, oh, I can't believe that just happened. No. God is in control. He always has been and always will be. He's the one who created everything that we see. He's in control of it all. So let's not be fooled into thinking that that God's not there, that God's not acting. No, he is. He always will be. He's a sovereign Lord who is involved in his creation, and he is in control. We can put our trust in that fact that God is truly in control. Now, what I want to point to... uh, Here is uh, the last thing I really want to point to is, is what God, one of the main things that God points out about his people. And it's the lack of justice and righteousness among his people. This is one of the main things that we see in the book of Amos that he calls them out for is this lack of justice and righteousness. Look at Amos 2, 6 through 8. This is when he's starting to call out Israel. He says this, thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless also turn aside the way of the humble. And a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. On garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Now, some people... Uh, interpreter, uh, Bible scholars disagree on exactly what Amos is talking about here. Some have tried to throw in a legal setting that the judges of Israel were taking advantage of those who were poor and those who were didn't have as much. Others point to something like debt slavery where there were some Israelites who had some type of debt they couldn't pay back and so they were sold into slavery because of that. And, and they had to serve to to, to pay off that that debt, regardless of exactly what's going on here, the the fact of the matter is, people are being sold. They sell the righteous for money and the needy for even just a pair of sandals. the the, the Those who were in need, those who needed things, those who were helpless, basically, were not getting the help that they needed. They were being trampled upon. They were being mistreated, being neglected. The very people that needed the help were the ones who were suffering the most in. Israel. And that last point on garments taken as pledges, we've got to go back to the book of Exodus. I believe it's a, a, a reference to something that happens in Exodus chapter 22. Look at what that says in verses 26 and 27. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets, for that's his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And it shall come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. If there was somebody who owed something to somebody, they could maybe give them this garment as a pledge that I will pay this back. But if you took something from somebody who was poor, like a garment, that cloak, you had to give it back to them so they could sleep in it. But what's happening here is they're not, they're not doing that in Israel. They're taking people's garments, the, the people who are poor, the people who don't have a lot, they're taking their cloaks, their garments, and they're not giving them back like they should. They're using them and spreading them out before altars in idolatrous worship. So the needy, the people who are in need uh, most, are, are being neglected and mistreated. Another example of this is in Amos chapter 5. Look in verses 11 and 12. He says, it's "'Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them, though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, yet you will not live in them. You have planted pr- pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. For I know your transgressions are many, and your sins are great.' You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the, in the gate. Again, the poor are being mistreated here. Those who are needy are being mistreated. Now, most scholars that I read actually do attach a, a legal situation here because of the reference to the gate where legal transactions would take place and disputes would take place. The needy is being pushed aside. And they're people who ha- are, are coming to the judges or the leaders and they're giving them bribes. And they're, they're paying forth bribes. And listen, the, the, the poor don't have things to give as a bribe, right? They don't have anything to give. And so they're just being pushed to the side. They're not, they're not being heard. The one place where they should have found justice and righteousness in the courts, they're not finding it. They're being pushed to the side. They're also being taxed a heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them. People who didn't have much to begin with were having what they had taken from them. It was a great injustice. Donald Sanukjin puts it like this, To do what was right and just on behalf of the needy was a crowning gem of human behavior and proved a special relationship with God. Justice and righteousness were more than essential sacrifice and ceremony, and nowhere were righteousness and justice more crucial than in the courts. Here the weaker members of society, those without money or influence, could receive protection from their oppressors and find fairness under the law. The problem was they weren't finding that. The people who were in need and needing their voice to be heard, they were just being pushed to the side. They They were actually having things taken from them. It's a really sad situation because you look back in the law, God had given many prescriptions for his people to take care of the needy, to take care of the people who were struggling, who didn't have as much. Folks, it's a serious crime to mistreat those who are in need, who are poor. And all throughout scripture, we see that that we are to help the poor. We are to help the needy. The very people who need it most, we should be helping. And that's not what's happening, even amongst their own countrymen in Israel. Now, the result of Israel's sin is found later in the chapter. God would not accept their worship. Look what he says in Amos 5, 21 to 24. I hate I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Again, there's a lack of justice and righteousness amongst the people. And yet they're still coming to God worshiping Him as if nothing's wrong. They're just, oh, let's just continue to uh, uh, have these assemblies and these festivals. Let's continue offering these burnt offerings. And all along in their lives, in their personal lives, they're not living right. They're not living the way God would have them to as just and righteous people. They're taking advantage of one another. And God's saying, you want to approach me by taking advantage of other people and sinning? That's not how this works. No, I'm not saying that you have to have it all together in order to worship God. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that the people here in Israel are are, are like being hypocritical, basically, and taking advantage of one another and then acting like nothing was wrong and going before God and trying to offer him this worship. Hey, everything's good, even though we're taking advantage of all these people. You know, and God says, no, no, I I hate the sound of your, your worship and reject your festivals. Because you're missing what I really want in your life is justice and righteousness. I want you to be living these things, not just offering these offerings, not just observing these festivals, but actually living out the justice and righteousness. And so he says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Again, Donald Senechian says this, instead of ritual and performance, God wanted a relentless commitment to justice and Righteousness. He wanted a passionate concern for the rights of the poor, a concern that would roll on like an ever-flowing river, like a never-failing falling stream that did not run dry. God wanted a day-to-day life of surging integrity and goodness. Only this outer evidence of inner righteousness could offer the Israelites the possibility of survival in the judgment of the Lord. God wanted a change of heart a change of life, not just these external things being offered to him. He actually wanted justice and righteousness to be a part of who they were, taking care of the people who needed it most, watching out for them, being fair to one another, doing right by one another, and that wasn't happening. And he says, change your ways. Look what he says earlier in the chapter in verses 13 to 15. Therefore, at such a time, the prudent person keeps silent, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live And thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you. Just as you have said, hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. If only Israel would seek good and not evil and establish justice again. Be fair to everybody and be right towards everybody. Maybe God would have relented. But the problem is they didn't do it. And they continued in their sin. Here's the thing. God wants the same from our lives. God wants us to be people who live just and righteous lives. He wants us to take care of those who are less fortunate, be fair to everybody, and be right towards everybody. He doesn't just want our our worship here in in 60 minutes on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights. He wants us to live lives of justice and righteousness, letting it flow through us like a never-failing stream, something that's always a part of our lives. I think about the pharisees who are so caught up in the the rituals and the traditions and jesus says guys you're missing it i desire mercy and not sacrifice right they were missing the greater things the weightier matters of the law and sometimes i think we can be so caught up in traditions and other things that we miss the most important things and it's being just and it's being righteous being merciful and loving so my question to you tonight is, where are you in this? Is your life a life of a righteous and just justice, righteousness and justice? That's like an ever-flowing stream. God wants that from all of his people. But I want to recall to you, number one, God can use you. 100% God can use you. Number two, trust in the sovereignty of God, that he is in control. And number three, I want you to understand that God wants us to live lives of justice and righteousness to have it in the church to have it in our personal lives flowing like an like a never never ending river where are you tonight where is your heart tonight if you need help we love to help you we love to pray with you and for you if you've never given your life to the sovereign lord who can help you and who can change your life we want you to give your life to him tonight if there's anything that you need please come forward right now as we stand and as we sing